I'm Ben Horton. And I'm Agnes Frimston, and you're listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Undercurrents. Thank you for joining us. Down the line, I have, as ever, with me, Agnes Frimston. How are you? Hello, I'm well, thank you. London is warm. How are you? It is warm. Yeah, I'm good. I'm pretty busy. It's been just such a such a busy couple of weeks, hasn't it? With all the all the interviews we've been doing. We have been doing a lot of interviews, which means something exciting for you guys. Absolutely. For you guys, it means tons more interesting content. And this week is no exception to the extent that we're going to give you a bonus episode. We are. We're going to split our long podcast into two small podcasts, smaller podcasts, with both interviews, all just really comprehensive and interesting. And it seemed like a shame to cut them down to a more usable listener listening time together. Exactly. Would that be fair? I think that would definitely be fair. So we're going to give you two deep dives rather than one edited version <laughs> Slit, yeah skim dives what's the difference shallow dives shallow dives, dives. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we're going to start off with the interview that you recorded this week Agnes tell me a bit about that well I was joined by our erstwhile colleague Yusuf Hassan who listeners should remember from episode 57 am I right yeah that is right That's... two episodes ago and where you spoke to him about inclusion in Westminster and Parliament but Yusuf is the Parliamentary Media and Outreach Officer at the Africa Programme here at Jazz Mouse. And prior to that, he was his role was working on increasing diversity within UK politics and universities. So he knows what he's talking about. And he joined me to interview the great Charlotte Lydia Riley, who is a university professor. She teaches history at the University of Southampton. She's currently writing her first book, um, Imperial Island, which is sort of an alternative history of Britain from the Second World War to the present day. And it's about empire and decolonisation. Mm-hmm. Um, really interesting. And she came to speak to both of us about a short piece she wrote in The Guardian last week on statues in the wake of the Edward Colston statue in Bristol being torn down and this entire debate in Britain especially, but also in the States, coming up about the role of statues. Who should we have statues to? Does it matter? So it was a really interesting discussion, hopefully, <laughs> for you guys. I enjoyed it anyway. So we've got, we've got that, yeah. Lovely stuff. Well, let's have a listen. So this week, I am lucky enough to be joined by Charlotte Lydia Riley, who teaches history at the University of Southampton and is currently writing her first book, Imperial Island, which tells an alternative history of Britain from the Second World War to the present day. Thank you for joining us, Charlotte. Thank you for having me. We're here to have a bit of a discussion based off a article you wrote in The Guardian last week entitled, Don't Worry About Rewriting History. It's literally what we historians do inspired by the Coulston statue being torn down in Bristol. I'm also lucky enough to be joined by my colleague Yusuf Hassan, who is the Parliamentary Media and Outreach Officer at the Africa Programme. And prior to his role, he worked on increasing diversity within UK politics and universities. And keen listeners will remember him from episode 57, where he and Ben had a chat about race in Westminster. And you're here, Yusuf, because we like to mix stuff up, don't we? Yes, we do. You know, thanks for thanks for bringing me on. Yeah, we've had enough of Ben often. Do you, do you want to kick us off, Yusuf? Yes, let's. Of course, thank you for joining us today. 
Of course, for our international listeners, a lot of this debate and discussion was really kicked off by the removal and then subsequent dumping of the statue of Edward Colston, infamous slave trader and former deputy governor of the Royal African Company, which was a company, of course, that profited huge amounts of the West African and transatlantic slave trade. Colson's statue being taken down has been condemned by many in the establishment and, uh, and across the country as a rewriting of history. Do you agree? So I guess I kind of do agree, but I don't think that's a bad thing, if that makes sense. So mm. I think, you know, it's, a res- it's certainly a response to history and it's certainly a response to the historical record, which is what historians are interested in, really. But I think history is a kind of living, breathing thing that we're always shifting and changing and rewriting and so I I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing I think a lot of the time when people were saying you know this is about rewriting history they were they were very clear in their mind that that was a bad thing to do and that was a criticism of the protesters and of the removal of the statue and and I guess I I kind of agree but I think it's a good thing. So why do you think it's a good thing? So I think there's a lot to be said about sort of how this statue represents a certain type of history in a particular moment in the historical record or a particular entry in the historical record, I guess, which is that this statue was erected in 1895 um, at the end of the 19th century at a period when Britain is, is very keen to promote imperialism at home as it's expanding its empire overseas. And so they are putting up this statue of Colston because they want to commemorate and celebrate a particular type of imperial expansion, this kind of very aggressive mercantile, very based on trade expansion around the world and this idea of Britain being the kind of best and brightest imperial nation. And, you know, they were doing that then as a historical intervention. They wanted to say, this is what Britain is, this is what our history is, this is how we, who we are as a nation. and. That is a story that we need to be critical of and a story that as a historian, I well, first of all, I want to point out it is a story. Like it's it's a story they're telling by putting the statue up. It's not like a reflection of the past as a fact or or something like that. It's it's one narrative about the past, but also that we don't necessarily have to hold on to that narrative now. It's not necessarily something we still want to celebrate, so we can get rid of it. Like that's a good thing to do. It's quite interesting what you say about sort of the fact that history can be flexible when we're talking about things that are literally set in stone. (laughs) These statues were put up to be here forever. How does that sort of fit with the fact that, yeah, history changes as one looks at it differently? I think that's the thing, right? Statues and and, and everything, like memorials and, and kind of other bits of public art. Is it public? Like kind of stuff in the public realm, I guess. You know, it is put there as a kind of, it's like a claim making for the future, isn't it? You're like putting those things down and you're thinking, right, I'm going to make sure this person is remembered. When you erect a statue to someone, you want people in the moment that you put that statue up to look at the statue and, and feel positive about this person. But you also, you want people for the future to do that as well. And it's a particular kind of sort of staking a claim to that space into the future, if that makes sense. And I think we have a sort of, tend to have quite a passive response to these things. We tend to assume that because something has been put up, we have to leave it there. And a sort of weird reverence for statues that we don't actually have for other old things. And the example, I I was thinking a lot about trees, which makes me sound like a huge hippie, but like a 200-year-old tree is a tree that cannot just be replaced, right? You cut down a, an old forest or, or an old oak tree or something, and it's not like you can just say, right, we'll just make a new one. Mm. Like that's something that takes a long time to kind of come to fruition, and yet we don't really agonise about cutting them down in the same way. 
But this statue, which which can after all just be moved or could be recreated or, you know, it's being moved to a museum, removing it is part of a long conversation. It's not it's not really destructive, I don't think, as an impulse. Well, thank you for that. I think as part of the last couple of interventions, a large part of it has been about reframing history, right? And and as you mentioned, rewriting history is something, history is a fluid and, and thing that constantly changes as to the way that it's viewed. A discussion now being had is people critiquing discussions around or critiques of British history as seen as moralizing history or trying to frame it in a negative manner. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts as someone, of course, who works in this area to the British relationship with our past? Are, are we informed enough? Do we know enough about our colonial past? Is there a understanding that some of the things that our ancestors engaged in weren't particularly humane, if you understand what I mean? Yeah, I think I think it's interesting because I think as a nation, Britain has a very... Well, all nations, right? They have a kind of national narrative about what the past looks like and they have particular moments that they remember and that they kind of highlight. And like, you know, a big one in Britain is the Second World War, obviously. This is a very important national moment in our history that is still kind of evoked a lot in politics and is used a lot rhetorically. And the empire is definitely part of that, but in a really specific way. So Britain is much more comfortable talking about how the British ended the slave trade than they are talking about British participation in the slave trade. They're much more comfortable talking about how or asserting that the British decolonisation was much more, apparently much more humane and peaceful and democratic than other decolonisations. That's that's not true, actually, in, in actual fact. But, you know, that's something that people like to talk about as being part of our national history. And I think all national historical narratives are constructed in this way. Like America has their own national historical narrative, which is a lot to do with manifest destiny and the idea of America kind of being a city on a hill and their particular historical narrative. And obviously now, you know, a lot to do with the Civil War and and how they remember that. But I think in Britain, it's hard because people know things about the past, but but they're only comfortable knowing them in a particular light or thinking about them in a particular way. Is that not hugely to do with how things are taught and whether people have access to this sort of information? In Britain, are we taught colonial history in the same way that we're taught the Tudors? Or I'm just thinking back to what I studied at school. Mm-hmm. Um, other than the abolition of the slave trade, I didn't study it. No, exactly. I think I think the vast majority of us that, that went to state schools will be able to recall people like William Wilberforce and and, mm-hmm. and the incredible work that he did in abolishing slavery, but we're not really taught about the, the the centuries before that where where the British Empire benefited off said slavery, right? Mm-hmm. We're taught about the Industrial Revolution and we're taught about how Britain changed the world and changed industry through these incredible inventions, but we're not taught about what finance said said infrastructure development, right? Mm-hmm. And I think I think that's exactly one of the one of the bigger areas of colonial amnesia or empire amnesia that we tend to like charlotte just said we tend to romanticize and forget there were real world effects to, to, to some of the very very successful endeavors that we we are taught throughout school it's interesting as well because you mentioned wilberforce and i've got so there's a lot that's quite complicated about it actually because one of the things that's on the curriculum is the slave trade right students have to learn about the slave trade at school so what year are they learning about that in secondary school so it's obviously complicated in lots of ways in britain so the fact that students Children don't have to take history after 14, complicates it, because you're necessarily teaching history to children when they're actually quite young. So that's one thing I think that makes it hard. Then that you as a historian, are you anti the fact that people don't have to learn history after 14, Charlotte? 
I feel quite conflicted about it, actually, because I think when we talk about, you know, there's often this thing and there's been a lot of people recently have been called for, you know, more history teaching. We, this shows that we need to learn more history about lots of things, not just actually this, you know, it's often a kind of call. History teaching would kind of save us. I'm quite ambivalent about the idea that we should mandate history learning later and make it one of the core subjects like English and maths and science, because I think that ignores the reason why students drop it at 14, which is often that they don't feel that the curriculum is reflecting stories that they can connect to, or they or they don't enjoy it for other reasons. But it's disproportionately the posher and whiter you are, the more likely you are to take history, basically, as at GCSE and A-level. So I think making it mandatory without really thinking hard about content would be a mistake because we'd, we'd be kind of missing out the reasons why students don't want to take it. It's seen as a hard subject as well. Schools see it as a, as a hard subject. And so they often encourage weaker students not to take it, which is also a shame. At GCSE and A-level, what you study is mandated by the exam boards, not by the government. And the exam boards are commercial entities. So they produce material that they think schools want to teach. And if there's a demand for material on empire, which there should be and which there clearly is, then they can respond to that. But it can be quite slow. And the other thing I think that's, that is complicated is, like I said, kind of mentioning Wilberforce. So obviously learning about the abolition of the slave trade, even we think about abolition. So first of all, we don't think about the slave trade or slavery. We just think about abolition. But also we think about abolition through the prism of these white men. You know, we learn it through Wilberforce. We think about it through British campaigners. We don't think about the responses of enslaved peoples we don't and we don't tend to set this either in an international or a transnational context so like you're right we don't we don't think about it in the context of the Haitian revolution against the French for example so again like I I think it would be really good if people learned more about this topic and and lots of other historical topics as well that's the thing I think British imperialism is an important thing people need to learn about and have a much more critical history of But there's also the sort of case that I wouldn't want it to just go on the curriculum without this big wider discussion, because, of course, you could just get teachers teaching very positive histories of the British Empire. If it's mandated on the curriculum, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're mandating it to be taught in a kind of critical, political, engaged way. So it's quite a complex discussion, I think. So in what way do you think it could be taught as a sort of positive well, I just, I just think, you know, you would get teachers, you know, you, you do hear about people who say, well, you know, actually, no, we did study bits of the British Empire and we learned about Britain having the greatest empire or having the, you know, or we learned about British civilization and, and you know, people spreading Christianity or we learned about it as an adventure story, essentially, of Britain kind of charging around the world, hoovering up colonies. So you'd have to be, if you were going to put it on the curriculum, you'd need to make sure... Or, or certainly from my political and historical perspective, I'd want to make sure people were going to teach it critically, <laughs> which which would do, be a lot of work. You'd need to think very, very hard about how to do that, how to kind of build that in. Yeah, it's not it's not an easy thing to teach. I, you do some damage, like you say. So Charlotte, how do you feel Britain has dealt with its past history, at least on a, from a societal perspective? I, I, you mentioned it earlier as to how it may be viewed in a certain way, but do you feel that there ever has been that level of introspection, at least on a society-wide level? No, I think Britain deals with its history very badly. Although I always kind of go down this route of saying Britain is very bad at this and then I end up telling a story about how Britain is exceptional in how bad they are at dealing with their history, which isn't necessarily true. But I think 
I have always been kind of slightly resistant to the idea of imperial nostalgia in a way, because I don't think when Britain, I don't think Britain's relationship to its empire is purely nostalgic. I think there's a lot of silences in there. And I think there's a lot of forgetting. And Paul Gilroy talks about post-colonial melancholia as a sort of national state rather than necessarily this nostalgic state. And I think that's possibly sometimes closer to the truth. Would you mind uh, defining that? So sort of the idea that rather than being often imperial nostalgia could sort of imply that what happened was you had decolonization and then Britain moved forward but with this I don't know loving look towards the past so this kind of positive memory of what had happened and this real kind of sense that the empire was a good thing and post-colonial melancholia is much more to do with the idea that Britain loses an empire and is kind of left rudderless and sort of stranded and that the British people and establishment and and politicians and and all of the rest of it sort of find it very hard to understand what Britain's role in the world is after empire and also find it difficult to kind of engage with who they are. The end of empire is also the point at which you get a lot of migration from former colonies to Britain, not least between sort of 1948 and 1962, when there's essentially freedom of movement between the colonies and former colonies in Britain. And so you get this anxiety in kind of big inverted commas around the end of empire combined with this larger than before amount of migration to Britain. And this is how you get the particular flavour of British post-war racism is kind of shaped by those two forces that you have the sort of end of empire and this anxiety or this lack of understanding of what, what Britain's role in the world is combined with this sense that Britain is kind of changing and that, that migration is changing Britain in some way. I have always got the impression that the way that Britain sort of has dealt with its colonial past has been through one of embarrassment Mm. rather than clear acknowledgement. But I think, I mean, if you look at the Windrush scandal, just the fact around that was all of the media across the board on the right and the left were outraged by that. Mm -hmm. It was this feeling of these are British citizens. I mean, I think in many ways Britain feels like it's it's a very inclusive place of our former like people who have who previously were part of our former colonies and mm. um, quite a lot of ownership that you know like protectiveness without actually dealing with addressing the actual past yeah I think I think Windrush was a really clarifying moment for me as a historian of empire and um, or the Windrush scandal it's the 72nd anniversary today when we're recording this podcast it's the 72nd anniversary of the Windrush landing of the boat that they took this name for, for the Windrush scandal, the Empire Windrush, which brought mostly young men, two female stowaways and a lot of young men over to Britain in 1948 to come and rebuild Britain after the Second World War. And it was really clarifying for me, the Windrush scandal, in a couple of ways. So firstly, what I found very telling was that, I think you're, you're right, there was a huge amount of outrage like across the political spectrum, including from newspapers who have not normally been that that sympathetic to migrants in Britain. But a lot of people seem to think that these people had earned citizenship, that, you know, they'd been in Britain and they'd often done, like, they'd worked in the public sector, they'd worked in caring roles and things, or that they'd been here long enough to earn citizenship or that this this was sort of what gave them the right to be here. And, and they didn't, nobody really seemed to understand that between 1948 and 1962, anyone who came to Britain from the empire was allowed to live here. There was no need to to earn citizenship. They were citizens. There there was one citizenship category, citizen of the United Kingdom and colonies. So that was one thing. The second thing that was really clarifying to me was that about halfway through the scandal, someone pointed out, well, you know, we could use the boarding passes for the Windrush. We could use that to kind of map out when these people came into the country and show they have the right to be here. And it turned out the Home Office had destroyed all of the boarding passes of people who had come from Caribbean and come on the Empire Windrush at the end of the Second World War. 
and actually that when they had destroyed these, which had been done quite recently, it had been done under Theresa May when she was Home Secretary, someone had sort of said, are these not quite important historical documents? You know, should we not do something with this? And it had just been, they had just been kind of talked over and they'd just destroyed them all. So this kind of big chunk of historical record had been destroyed by the government who were kind of removing people from the archive. I think there is a sort of degree of shame, both about the treatment of the people in the Windrush scandal and also, I I suppose, in a wider way about British imperialism. But I actually, I don't think it is a sort of embarrassment and a lack of wanting to talk about it, because I think that would imply that people knew enough about the bad things that had happened to feel embarrassed. And I don't think many people do. I don't think many people think practically about what empire means or what it was like. And I think part of that is because of this British attitude that this kind of construction of Britain as a liberal, tolerant, humanitarian nation, the so-called British values that children are now taught in schools, about kind of being welcoming to other people and and being supportive and and, and narratives about things like the kinder transport that apparently show that Britain has this long history of, of welcoming people. Yeah, although, Charlotte, you pointed out something on Twitter that's absolutely scarred me about the kinder transport. Oh, God, yes, this is the thing. So the kinder transport, which is the, the period of 1937-1938 when Jewish children are allowed into Britain um, to save them from the Holocaust, the kinder transport creates orphans. The children who were let into Britain as part of the kinder transport were children who had living parents, whose parents sent them to Britain knowing they would never see them again. Britain, if it had, had wanted to, could have rehomed whole families and did not. Children always have a particular role in the humanitarian imagination. Children are the ideal recipients of humanitarian aid for lots of reasons. But it always makes me wince to see the British government talking about the kinder transport as a moment of of wonderful British sort of largesse and humanitarian charity, because actually, you know, what they did was create a lot of Jewish orphans. And and those children also, the, the point of the kinder transport was always supposed to be that it was temporary. They were given temporary visas they were expected to move on somewhere else afterwards. And, and, and many of the kinder transport children did re-migrate at the end of the war. So I think Britain's image of itself, it does not really work with a lot of the uncomfortable details from Britain's history. And rather than change Britain's image of itself, what it has instead done is just forget a lot of those uncomfortable bits of the history. Just a, just a follow-up on something you just said, which actually has been on my mind a little bit. And the way that Britain, of course, views its colonies, right? Mm-hmm. The sense that Australia, Canada, America, and 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 its inhabitants would you, in in your perspective, see them as much more fondly uh, remembered or fondly recognised as brethren, as much as other protectorates that may may of course be, like, whether it be in sub-Saharan Africa, whether it be in mm-hmm. the, in South Asia and India. And because I say this, for example, as with migration and and, and actually linked to the Windrush generation and the scandal itself. Mm -hmm. Was it because these people came from the less favoured colonies, even though those were the ones where Britain technically profited most of, if you understand what I mean? Yeah, no, I think absolutely. And I think think race has a huge part to play in this, right? I think the fact that these were people of colour. And actually, lots of people got caught up in this scandal who were not actually from the Caribbean. So there were people who were being, who were deported to Uganda and Ghana, for example, like in the, at the same moment as the Windrush scandal. I think it's kind of interesting it became the Windrush scandal because that is the Windrush generation. But actually, a lot of these people were people who were a bit younger than that. But that became such a sort of emblematic moment, I guess, of migration that that's, that's how we kind of thought about it as a nation. The idea about Australia is interesting because it reminds me again of the kind of what was supposedly going to be this sort of post-Brexit reimagining of Britain's foreign relations, which was going to lean heavily on Kansuk, one of my favourite portmanteau words, the Canada-New Zealand Australia UK 
lumping together as this sort of trade thing. What what in the empire were called the White Dominions, the places where British settlers have well either live alongside or largely wiped out the indigenous populations. And it's interesting because the White Dominions of Canada, New Zealand, Australia, to some extent South Africa, there obviously has a more complicated relationship, a much, much larger black population. They had this kind of status even when the empire existed. So they were given, for example, in 1931, they were given control over their own foreign policy. They were technically, you know, they they ran their own armies in the Second World War, for example, even there's not really been a moment where these places were made independent in inverted commas, because they didn't really need to be. They've just sort of gradually drifted into being nation states in their own right, although off, you know, with the Queen as head of state. And so there's a moment, actually, Margaret Thatcher, I think it's before she's elected as prime minister, she's making a, a speech about the Commonwealth. And she says, you know, the Commonwealth isn't what it used to be. And we used to imagine this kind of kith and kin of essentially white people and that the, the new commonwealth of people like Kenyatta and Nkrumah was not what they imagined the commonwealth to be. You know, when she imagined commonwealth, she imagined white people sipping gin and tonics rather than this kind of new multiracial, multinational commonwealth that had been created at the Second World War by lots of newly independent colonies. So I think I think you're completely right, like Britain's relationship to particular bits of its imperial history are are more complicated than others and it's easier for Britain to like look at Australia as being a place that it feels like it has some sort of ongoing relationship with largely through whiteness and language and all of the rest of it but again the British then don't think about how that has impacted on the Aboriginal population in Australia. Charlotte I'm going to pivot you back to statues. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think is the point of statues as a historian? Well, so statues as in kind of statues of people. Because obviously you have like more war memorials and things like this, which are, which are slightly different. And war memorials are some of the only sort of statuey things that we have that actually have ordinary people on them because they have the names of men, almost entirely men who fought and died. And so war memorials, I think, are really interesting in what they do in terms of putting ordinary people into public space and commemorating them. The statues of people, I think, are undeniably celebratory. And I think that that's quite important, actually, in getting to the heart of the point of some of a lot of these these statue protests, right? Statues of people are not put up in order to condemn them or in order even to tell a story of both sides. You don't put up a statue of someone in order to acknowledge that they were a complicated historical figure who had both kind of good and bad things going for them, although I don't think that's something you can say of Colston in any way. I think he was an evil man. And so a lot of the kind of debates around the statues about leaving them, you know, should we, could we just put up a plaque, for example, in order to provide some context? Is this something we should do instead? They don't really get to the heart of what statues are doing or what they're for. They are there to, to celebrate the figure. Putting up a plaque explaining that Colston may have been a philanthropist, but the money he was being a philanthropist with was almost entirely earned through the enslavement of people doesn't do anything really to diminish from the large statue of him there's not it's kind of like with newspaper corrections the idea that your correction should be of kind of similar prominence to the original story I sort of feel like if you have a statue of a person and you wanted to provide context the context would need to be on a level of the statue it couldn't just be a kind of plaque next to it explaining that actually this was a this figure is is actually quite controversial or whatever and I think when people talk about kind of providing this contextual information, they're not thinking about 
the ways in which people interact with statues, which is which tends to be, as I said, kind of fairly passive. They they occupy public space, which is an interesting question in and of itself. They're they're in they tend to be in space that is publicly owned. It's something that we should all have a stake in anyway. But you know, statues are large and they are landmarks, and and you're not necessarily getting information from it on a level of, of reading a, a plaque next to it or something that, that it's there as a as a symbol it it denotes something even if you don't get up close to it to look at the small amount of wording presented near it so do you so think I, if there was a plaque next to it that would change the context in which do you, do you think that would make a difference no i don't because i don't think it's enough i don't think it offsets the power of a statue of a person um, there was a very good artistic response to Colston a few years ago, which um, someone kind of, a local artist laid out casts of enslaved people in, in a rough kind of shape of a slave ship around the statue. And that I thought was a really interesting response because it was it was large, right? It really kind of, it, it was much bigger. There were many more people presented around Colston than Colston himself. And, and it was big and it really disrupted the space and it really made you look at it differently. And and that kind of thing, like a really kind of dramatic reimagining, maybe. I quite liked, for example, even though I don't think this was the end point, when one of the Columbus statues in America, they decapitated him. And I don't think he necessarily needs to be left up, but I was more interested in that as a response than the idea that you could have a statue of a Columbus and just put a plaque up next to him. Like if you're going to do something to kind of interrogate this past, I think it has to be something quite dramatic in Moscow and Budapest and quite a few Eastern European cities they have parks which are called fallen memorials so they put everything that they take down yeah so it's still there it's not uh, you know you can't be accused of whitewashing history but it's not in the center of a city square I mean Mm -hmm. how do you think placement of these things is is key If, if that Coulson statue had been on the edge of Bristol in a park in a corner would it have mattered as much I think not, although I think, you know, st- still people would probably want to remove it, and I think rightly. But you're right, placement's really important. My brother lives in Lithuania, and they have something similar. They have the very famous kind of big park with all of the fallen memorials in it. Placement's important, and like I said, the kind of the question of this being public land, I think, is also very important. I think things that you have to walk past every day, whether you choose to visit it or not, has a very different tone to something which is sort of kept somewhere, you know, that people don't see. I'm I'm really ambivalent about the idea of a kind of memorial garden with these figures because I do feel a bit like we sometimes cling too much to to things from the past just because they're old without really thinking about what value or interest they have. Like the, the statue of Colston actually like now they keep they're putting it in a museum in Bristol because of the graffiti that's on it and because of the response and their you know it's it's an interesting figure. He still has his they the protesters bound his they shackled his legs before they threw him in the harbour and they've kind of kept that and they've kept the graffiti around his face and stuff and he is it is an interesting figure so the fact that what has been done to him the the statue of him sorry through being taken down has made the statue a new form of art or worth exactly and and a new form of story as well right because it enables you to tell the story about Colston the slave trader about the Victorians at the end of the 19th century in this imperial moment and then the protest and the response so it actually gives you it's now quite a really interesting case study about Britain's relationship to its empire and all of this rest of this like now it's a great piece something wonderful for a museum a lot of these statues are not right they're not interesting 
they're not great artistic works. They're not of people who are particularly important. The question of whitewashing history is interesting because I think, yes, we need to, of course, if I thought that taking down statues of slave traders meant people wouldn't learn about the slave trade anymore, I'd feel very differently about it. But I don't think people do learn about the slave trade from these statues of slave traders. And I think there's a question about whitewashing history again. If if leaving the statues up made us think critically about the kind of place Britain is that it would memorialise slave traders and how awful that is, then yeah, I maybe I would think, yeah, taking them down kind of lets Britain off the hook. But I don't think leaving them up does help people to think about those things. I think if anything, it makes people think Colston was a philanthropist and that's how they kind of think about him. The idea of putting them all in a garden, I'm always a bit ambivalent about because I just can't imagine who would visit in this particular context. Because it's not like a fallen regime or something. It's not a moment in history where you would think, yes, actually, the, you know, these people were leaders or something. They're imperialists. I don't know. It's a funny, you know, funny thing to want to see in a way. No, I think I think that's a, a such a, such an interesting point. On reflection, who would be the people that visited a place like that? I think when it comes to actually the the moment in time in which a lot of these statues were, of course, placed in in, in the places that they were. Mm-hmm. Was there was there a particular reaction at that point, but by um, by the local populations? I don't. So in Britain, I'm not. I'm not so sure, really. And I think often not. I think they're put up as you know the Colston statue was erected essentially on a private fund. Someone paid for it to go up because they thought it was a good thing to memorialise. I I can't imagine the people of Bristol in the late 19th century were kind of. I don't think this was a sort of bread and roses moment. Mm. You know, I don't. I don't mm. think they were like, oh, thank you for giving us this statue of this man or whatever. Mm. The American context for this is really interesting. I was talking to a colleague of mine, David Cox, who does 19th century American history, and he said, you know, most of the Confederate statues go up much later in in the 1890s, and they're erected as part of this real kind of rewriting of what the Civil War was about, and this real moment in the South of romanticizing the Confederacy and also of trying to claim that the Civil War was about states' rights. But it's also a period of sort of enormously terrifying lynching and the Ku Klux Klan is very active and this kind of thing. So it's a real moment of of white supremacy being enacted by putting those Confederate statues up in the in the sort of again 1880s, 1890s in America. And I think there we have a much better idea of how people responded, that like the white communities in these places in the American South responded very positively to this because they felt like it was a kind of you know, they're really asserting their cultural hegemony and their their kind of history and, and the way they want to think of themselves. In Britain, I think, again, it, it is kind of this more about these silences and things. I, I don't think a lot of people, I think there are particular statues and particular people that, pe- that people might feel a kind of local ownership of. So statues of people like Nelson in Plymouth or whatever go up and people feel very, you know, positive, local, a kind of local connection. But, I, but I'm not sure there is actually in Britain this huge, real kind of feeling that, that these are things that people want. No, I think that really brings me on to a question that I really want to ask, which was around legacy, right? And then the understanding mm-hmm. of, of, of one's legacy. It's interesting that the, the statue that ended up coming down first was, of course, Edward Colston. But the, the initial discussion around statues, at least amongst the commentary, was, was around Cecil Rhodes, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. About the Rhodes Fall campaign, it was about activists in Oxford really saying his presence in the, in the in the city center was one that provided those those attending the the, the college with a historical trauma that they would remember mm-hmm. as, as to as to the effects of of his businesses if you'd like to call them that mm-hmm. in, in in southern africa right 
Where do you feel or what do you see as a long-term legacy of individuals like Colston and Rhodes and how do the British public or or the individuals who, of course, are amongst or working within institutions where they have these legacies, how does one actually reconcile that with with the modern-day achievements that will be given to them, i.e. Rhodes scholarship, some would say, and and Colston having a school named after him, or even the fact, for example, in my personal life, right, my, my secondary school, was, mm-hmm. was, was was Sir John Cass Redcoat School, which oh, is, right, yeah. which has got into the news of recent because, of course, yeah. they're renaming it because of John Cass's uh, links to to the Royal Africa Company, right? Yeah, yeah. So what what would you, what would your thoughts be towards that? Well, it's interesting because I I did my undergrad and my PhD at UCL, and they have got a building naming and renaming committee that has just denamed apparently the Pearson Lecture Theatre and the no the Golton Lecture Theatre and the Pearson Building who were eugenicists at the end of the 19th century and who were you know two of the originators of racial science basically and and wrote incredibly racist screeds about kind of racial hierarchies and things and for years we were trying to get those places renamed for years people were trying to get like it's a lecture theatre it just has a name on the door it would be so easy to rename the Golton Lecture Theatre there isn't a statue to pull down it's not like a school where you have to change I don't know, all the stationery and everything. It is literally a sign on the door. And UCL was so resistant to the idea that this is something it might want to do. Ideally, would you want that lecture theatre completely renamed? Or would you want there to be an acknowledgement of what it had been previously known as? I would want it to be renamed, but I would also like UCL to have some acknowledgement of this past. Because, you know, because UCL was... So it was a sort of new university in the 19th century and it became very associated with Galton and Pearson and they have their personal papers, right? Their archive is at UCL. So they, they're an important centre for this and historians study eugenics and these eugenicist movements to learn about these people. So I think I would like them to be completely renamed, but I would also like them to have some acknowledgement of this complicated history. I'd like there to be an exhibit or something. I mean, UCL for years had exhibited in the South Cloister. Gandhi studied at UCL and they had his student record exhibited there. They're very proud, right, that Gandhi studied at UCL. They could have something about Pearson and Colton and about these eugenicists. I mean, they have, they literally have Jeremy Bentham's stuffed body in a glass box. They don't have a problem kind of dwelling on the past. So I think they they have space to talk critically about this stuff. But I think also renaming the building and the lecture theatre would be a good thing. On Rhodes, it's really interesting because Rhodes Must Fall obviously starts in South Africa, where there's still a huge amount of Rhodes is still very associated with the higher education sort of sector there and universities and things named after Rhodes with huge Rhodes statues and things. So it started in South Africa and, and then it became this movement at Oxford with, this, with the Rhodes Must Fall Oxford group and um, with staff and students who were trying to get this, this statue down and talking about renaming the Rhodes scholarships as well. And obviously the interesting thing at Oriel was that initially it looked like they might be successful and then there were these kind of rumours that they had decided not to pull down the statue because... Oh, they said, you know, they, they risked losing money from donors who didn't want the statue to be removed, which was interesting because they kind of nakedly laid out there what the debate was, right? It was between getting rid of the statue who people felt was really the glorifying of a, of a really unpleasant, like a man who was racist by the standards of his own time, not just a man who, when we look back historically, was problematic. Like Rhodes at the time was a racist imperialist. And... It's, it is interesting to to see an institution actually so kind of explicitly say, well, but if we got rid of the statue, we'd lose money. And the, the scholarships, I think, is a, is an interesting question because there was, yeah, there was some sort of sort of media responses saying that Rhodes should 
should not be disrespected in this way because of the creation of the Rhodes Scholarships. And obviously people, you know, a lot of very famous people who've had Rhodes Scholarships and who've kind of benefited from that money. But the money comes from from the exploitation of African colonies, right? In the same way that Colston's philanthropy comes from the slave trade. That's where the money comes from. And in fact, it's a deliberate ploy. These men take this money that they, they earn in these morally dubious ways and they put them into philanthropic causes in essentially in order to whitewash their image it's not a coincidence that these people end up doing philanthropic work it's part of a cultural project to clear their name almost and to create a different historical legacy so so sort of buying into that i think is unnecessary we don't we can take these men's money and rename the scholarship it's fine i think in you can you can do that so I think it is really interesting how many places are now having to. I was really interested to see the to see John Cass and the, their response that they would they would need to think critically about this. I think it's really interesting to see how many institutions are starting to think about how much British society and culture actually was funded through both imperialism and slavery, and how deeply it's therefore embedded in things like building names and street names and all of the rest of it. Just to end on my side. Do you feel that Rhodes and and then the movement of uh, Colston in South Africa mm-hmm. was 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 a lightning rod for where we find ourselves today, especially in the immediate response to to the murder of George Floyd and people trying to find tangible ways of removing racism or structural racism within their societies? It's interesting, isn't it? Because I've seen people talk about the statues. And some of the kind of wider stuff as well, right? Like um, the BBC getting rid of an episode of Faulty Towers and things. And I've seen people talking about this as if as a distraction, that it's important that we don't get bogged down in these conversations about statues because we need to think actually much more about how to dismantle structural racism and, and that the statues in a way are, are a symptom, but they're not really the most important thing, which which I agree with. But I do think it's interesting that it's something to do with the power of protest, isn't it? And the idea of being able to do something tangible to bring about your aim, something tangible that makes the world a better place. And if you're protesting about racism and you're you know, inspired by the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and the Black Lives Matter movement, but also things like the, you know, the report that showed that people of colour are so much more likely to be affected by COVID-19 and and the Windrush scandal and the hostile environment and all of the rest of it, you know, those things might feel sometimes very difficult and very kind of, you know, huge and interconnected and looming. And and I can completely see why there might be a real relief in being able to find a concrete, specific thing, maybe literally concrete, specific thing to remove. Like not not as a distraction, not as a way of getting waylaid, but as a kind of symbol of of what needs to be done and what needs to be dismantled. So I think it is. It's all interconnected. It's interesting to see how interconnected it was. I, I was speaking to New Zealand Radio a couple of weeks ago and they've removed a statue of Wellington from Wellington. And it's interesting to see how global it's become, this movement and this kind of particular focus on, on statues and figures. And I, and I hope that the kind of much broader, bigger movement continues to be global in that way as well. But we'll see. Charlotte, thank you so much for coming to speak to us. I've got one final question for you. It's a personal one. It's a tricky one. I'm sorry. Okay. What would you like to see replace these statues? Hmm, that's a good question. Because years and years ago, when Rosemary's Fall first sort of started, I remember a journalist ringing me up as a historian and asking what we should do with Rhodes. And I said, oh, just pull him down. And I think he'd he'd rung me up to get a sort of serious historian's answer about 
history and the past. He's really, really just pulling down. And I said, oh, yeah, just, just pull down all of the statues of all of the white men and we'll just see where we are at that point. And he said, well, what would you replace them with? And I, I kind of got stuck. <laughs> I'm not sure, really. I really like the fourth plinth model. And actually, the fourth plinth is an interesting example because it has, there was a very, very good, I've completely forgotten the artist's name, but the, the ship in a bottle, which had the, the flags, right? And they're, they're all different imperial nations. And it was really a way of confronting Trafalgar Square, which is a space of British glory, naval glory, kind of confronting that with an imperial legacy. And I know Jeremy Della had, had submitted, but not had selected for the fourth plinth, a, a, a sculpture which was made of a car bomb from Baghdad, so a kind of exploded car, which he wanted to put on the fourth plinth, which I was very sad didn't get sort of chosen. I like the idea of using all of these empty plinths as spaces to do different things, interesting things, commission people to do different responses to our past, you know. Think about what was there before, maybe, and ask people to do artistic responses to them. There's been a kind of thing of, you know, should we should we try and put up statues of different people? And I think that would definitely, I think it would definitely be a good thing for us to have more statues of women and particularly more statues of people of colour, which they just are not really in Britain. But I think we also shouldn't get too bogged down into the idea that having statues of individual people is a thing that we necessarily need to emulate. We could think a bit more about what we actually want to have in public space and, and what sorts of things we really want to do. It does feel quite dated, doesn't it? I don't know if you agree. So the idea of putting up a statue to somebody feels dated. But then I was thinking about the fourth plinth and the amazing Mark Quinn sculpture of um, Alison Lapper there. Yes. With Lidamide, and how the fact that a disabled body like that was something that people walked past every day and became more normalised. Mm. And like, statues do have a role potentially in that, I don't know, in that way. Yusuf, I'm going to ask you the same question. What do you think we should put instead instead of all these statues? I think I would much rather... I, I'm someone that isn't the biggest fan... I'm not the biggest fan of uh, individuals being being venerated alone, not recognising mm. behind them, right? So I think, I think, I think similarly to Shola, I think it'd be quite interesting to see if we were willing to, to experiment. We live in a society where, where people aren't particularly interested in the physical. They're much more interested in the digital, right? And actually, I think like one area where I feel something could be done is like this discussion point has been brought forward before, which is that we have, of course, museums to, to we have one museum in, in Liverpool focused on slavery. Yeah. I think I think having a museum focused on the empire would be would, would be an equally important mm-hmm. contribution towards wider society, right? I think when it comes to taking down statues of individuals who are involved in horrific acts, maybe highlighting the leaders of the movements that put an end to, the, to those uh, acts would be would be an equal or fitting statement in response. Someone suggested to me the, about the Colston one in particular, so I don't mm. know if either of you have seen, you know, obviously the very big Holocaust memorial in, in Berlin, and it's very, that very sort of large, huge concrete blocks, and it mm. really kind of dominates the space, and it's a really kind of powerful memorial to the Holocaust. But off to one side, there's the memorial to murdered gay and lesbian people, and it's one of the concrete blocks, but it has a window in it. And when you look inside, there's a little screen and it's playing a flickering kind of loop of images of gay Berlin culture from the 20s and 30s. So from before when the before the Nazis kind of cracked down and it, obviously Berlin had been a real centre for, for gay culture. And they have this, this screen. You can watch these little little kind of flickering within this big block. And someone's, I had someone suggested, I thought it was, a, was a, a really interesting idea that they should put on the Coulson statue, they should put a screen showing his statue being dragged down and thrown into the harbour on a loop, which I really like. For that specific one, I really like the idea of 
of what you actually end up memorialising being the removal of the memorial. Because I agree that individuals, you know, as historians, we're kind of moving away from the idea of like what used to be called great men, right? Great men in history. There are brilliant individuals who we often want to commemorate, but they don't necessarily need to be leaders and big, important figures. And I think things like the Alison Lapper statue are so powerful because she's fundamentally, she's an ordinary person. And I like that idea as, as an alternative. We did used to have a Museum of Empire in Bristol, actually, which was closed. And there's a whole saga as to why and how that happened. But a lot of what was in the museum is now held by Bristol Local Museum. So actually, as a, as a city, they are well placed to think about how to deal with their particular legacy and what to do. But I agree that it would be, it would be good to have both a proper museum of empire, but also a proper m- memorial to the victims of the slave trade, which there's been a campaign to have for a long time, but has been so far unsuccessful. Charlotte, thank you so much for joining us. Charlotte's book, when's your book going to be out? Imperial Island? January 2022. I have to write it. So... <laughs> And we're going to link below to your piece in The Guardian, which everyone should read. Thank you so much for joining us. And Yusuf, thank you so much for joining me on this on this chat. Hope you enjoyed it. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Well, that was such a wide-ranging chat, Agnes. Congrats. Yeah, I think, well, I mean, Yusuf was brilliant as well. He asked he asked the harder questions, definitely. It's just such an insightful chap. Sorry, Ben, but, you know, he was great. Hope you're right. fretty. So if you want to replace me with Yusuf, then we can talk about it. We can talk about this. <laughs> Nonsense. But yeah. in the next couple of days, you guys will have another interview popping into your feed from Ben this time. From me. Yeah, Very we're going to keep it as a slight secret, shall we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We'll, we'll be coy we'll with the details, you. but yeah. essentially it's going to be great. It doesn't have Yusuf Hassan, so it's clearly not going to be as great as this interview. <laughs> but bear with it. And it's yeah. uh, it's incredibly interesting. So we'll be with you in a couple of days with that. And then normal programming shall resume from next, next week. Next week, yeah. But in the meantime... I'm Ben Horton. I'm Agnes Ripson, and you've been listening to Undercurrents. Undercurrents.